Uh, yeah, sorry about that. So no slides today. I apologize. I, I mean, I just I left the house like I got them done and just realized I didn't. All right, uh, everyone, please inv- open your Bibles with me to Proverbs chapter six. Proverbs chapter six. Continuing our journey in Proverbs. When Mallory and I got married, uh, we discovered how big of a difference there is, a cultural difference, between Missouri and Mississippi. Uh, For example, everyone older than you in Mississippi gets called Mr. or Mrs. So I even call my stepdad Mr. Jackie. It's a term of endearment now, but like when I first met him, he was Mr. Jackie, right? And so I still call him Mr. Jackie. Uh, It's not as... That's a term of endearment. But when I met Mal's parents, I called them Mr. Chuck and Miss Venice. And, and now that I know them, I'm like, that sounds really weird. And so I had to get used to not calling them Mr. and Mrs. Just call them Chuck and Venice. Uh, but one difference, especially when it came to weddings, was in wedding gifts. And uh, people in Missouri, what I like about you guys is you'll actually get a stuff that's on our registry. Uh, but people in Mississippi... What they got us were platters. And I mean like every shape and size and color of platter there is. We got round ones and square ones and rectangle ones. We got ones made out of copper, ones made out of wood and glass and ceramic. I mean we had coppers coming out or we had platters coming out of our ears. We had so many platters. Uh in fact we took some with us, but some we like gave to Mal's parents because like we need y'all to put these in storage for us. We don't know what else to do with all these platters. Now, I know some platters, right, they're designed to be put on display. You don't use them, you just put them on display in your house. So, we have to figure out how to use all these platters. We have so many platters, like, what do we use them for? So, everyone in their home has a junk drawer, right? It's where your change goes, it's where your pins go, maybe junk mail and gum, loose buttons, that that kind of thing. You just have a junk drawer. Everybody has one, and it's where your odds and ends go. Well, instead of a junk drawer, we had a drunk, 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 junk bowl. We used one of our glass platters that we had. It's like a really nice glass bowl platter. And that's when we put all of our junk. It's just out, you know, sitting out in the middle of our house on display. And it looked really nice. Like for junk, you know, it looked great in our platter. Uh, I have a friend in Mississippi, and we were talking with them about it, and they use, they have this, like, this really fancy platter, and they use it for like their TV remotes and stuff. It's like, we don't, we don't know what to do with all these platters. How do you know if you have wisdom? The best measure is whether you use it. Because wisdom is immensely practical. Wisdom isn't meant it isn't something that's meant to be put on display or for decoration or something for storage. It's meant to be used and it's meant to be practiced. This is one difference between biblical wisdom and worldly wisdom. There's some overlap. There's just a tiny bit of overlap, but there's a difference because biblical wisdom isn't just about how much you know or how much insight you have. It's about whether this comes out in the way you live. Right, We like to say with age comes wisdom, but biblical wisdom says, right, wisdom is how it comes out in the way that you live. 
Jesus himself said wisdom is proved right by her actions. So the best place to see if you have wisdom is in your actions. The way that you interact with uh, the people and the things of life. This is the message of Proverbs 6. There are several areas of life that Proverbs 6 addresses. It's kind of like a a grab bag of of areas of life. And you could even say that that it brings up all of these areas of life that Proverbs chapters 10 through 31, all the individual Proverbs, right, that we're familiar with, I I think you could say that they all kind of flow out from these in some way. So Proverbs 6 is kind of like a big overview kind of look at, at these areas of life and those individual Proverbs that we'll get to come out of these. And one thing that you'll find in this chapter and throughout the book of Proverbs is wisdom is very others-minded. Wisdom is very others-minded. Wisdom, like I've said before, is the fruit of a right relationship with God, which means it's the ability to carry out God's commands in all areas of life. And the second greatest commandment behind loving God is what? Loving people. So the fruit of wisdom, the practicality of wisdom, is learning how to live and love for neighbor. What that looks like and what that means. So before we ever start talking about how to practice wisdom, how to put it into action, before we start doing this, we need the heart change that the gospel offers to start living this way. Like, before we ever start living, like, in wisdom for this, before we ever start practicing, we need a fundamental identity change in the gospel. So that our hearts go from being self-centered to others-centered. To go from self-serving to self-sacrificing. And that's what the gospel offers. So we have to start there first. And that's why I'm going to frame this chapter I'm going to frame this this sermon in terms of the gospel. I'm going to center it around the gospel because our whole outlook on life needs to change first. So with that, let's go to Proverbs chapter 6 with these gospel lenses that we might learn how to practice wisdom. All right, Proverbs chapter 6, follow along in your Bibles, on your phone, or Someone next to you, or you you can listen to me. Sorry, it's not going to be on the screen today. Proverbs 6. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person 
A wicked man goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. and Do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. But a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse though you multiply gifts. First, the gospel changes our view of speech. I love my upbringing as an evangelical. Uh, I love my upbringing as a Southern Baptist. Uh, I'm eternally grateful because I was raised in a denomination where I was exposed to the gospel. And there's a lot, right, that Southern Baptists and evangelicals get right. And that's awesome. And that's what I'm grateful for. There's a lot we get right. But as I've gotten older, I've also gotten more honest about the things that we don't get so right. Things that we might get wrong or maybe a little weak on. And one weakness in Southern Baptist culture is understanding speech. The tongue. Why, why certain words are bad or, or why we shouldn't use certain kinds of speech or, or, or the words that we use or the way that we, we use them. So we've learned that, right, that cussing is like taboo, but we don't give thought to how we use our tongues in other areas of life. So without ever uttering a cuss word, we're still tearing other people down, right? Without ever uttering any kind of cuss word, we're still going to say, bless your heart to one person, but shame them with our words to our friends. We don't have a good understanding of speech in the tongue and why it's important. Or how the words that we use and, and how we use them reveal what's happening in our hearts. So these first five verses in, Pro, in Proverbs chapter 6 are, are, what, are what I call, about what I call social debt, right? So uh, it comes down uh, to verse 2, Solomon says, if, um, or verse 1, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your 
pledge for a stranger. Um, the social debt that Solomon is talking about is one where one person could, uh, and this one commentator said, pledge oneself as a guarantee for another's debts. So, right, in our day, it's kind of like putting yourself up as collateral, right, uh, or, or being a co-signer to help someone pay off a debt that they couldn't otherwise pay. That's this, this social debt. And, and that's, that's what he's talking about, but it really centers here on verse 2, right? If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. The thing about this culture, right, is, I don't know if you've ever heard this term, is it's an honor-shame culture. So what you do either is going to bring honor upon yourself and your family or shame upon yourself and your family. So you can imagine that saving face is huge in these kinds of cultures. Like, you avoid embarrassment at all costs. You, you stick to your social contracts to great stakes. Like, you, you go through painstaking, um, I don't know, painstaking like uh, work to keep your social contracts. You want to keep any kind of shame or embarrassment coming on yourself. I'm the kind of person who has a great resistance to embarrassment. Uh, and I um, actually, because of this, it's because I, I do embarrassing things all the time. And so I've just gotten immune to it, right? So I don't get really easily embarrassed. But a person in this culture, right, it's you do not make a promise to pay someone's debt and then go to, the, and go to them and say, actually, no, I can't do this. Take me off. You don't do that. It would have been immensely embarrassing and shameful. So this kind of practice, right, putting yourself up as security, as a pledge for someone else's debt, it happens in our culture, but not like a lot. It's not nearly as common as it used to be. So I would say the key point here that Solomon is trying to make is, is not like, hey, don't put yourself up for security, right? Like this actually... Right, there's a lot to be said about helping like a family member or someone help with their debts. Like he's not saying don't do that. He's saying don't be rash with your speech. Don't be rash with your words. Because here's what we do in our flesh. In our flesh, we use our speech to cover our tracks. We say whatever we can to save face. We say whatever we can to avoid repentance. We say whatever we can to come out winning an argument. We twist our words and others' words so that we come out looking favorable. We use our words to make others shoulder the blame. But the gospel changes our view of speech so that what we say is true and genuine and wholesome. This is exactly, if you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, let your yes be yes and your no, no. They're saying, Jesus and Solomon are saying one and the same thing. Here's the kicker. When you do make a mistake, if you do make a rash promise or say something you didn't mean or whatever, the gospel is what gives us the ability to say, I was wrong. 
no matter how embarrassing or wrong it makes you look or how much trouble you might get into for admitting it. Solomon, Solomon telling his son, right, if you've done this, if you made a rash promise, get yourself out. He knows it's going to be embarrassing for his son. It's going to shame his son. But that's exactly his point. The gospel gives us the ability to, to say, I, I was wrong to say this. Wrong to use my, my words in this way. The gospel, in other words, frees us to lose. And so our words are no longer used to help us save face. It frees us to lose, and it, cha- it does that by changing our view of speech. The gospel also changes our view of work. Solomon warns here, right in verses 6 through 11, uh, he warns here not against rest. He's not warning against rest or sleeping. He's not saying sleeping is bad, but he's warning against rest and relaxation as our primary mode of operation. He says, go to the ant, O sluggard. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? This is something that that we Americans have a hard time with. One of the funniest things that that you can do is if you talk to like uh, either you know a foreigner here, you go to a different country, and you ask them what comes to your mind or what do you think of Americans, and pretty much they like all say something to the extent of, "Well, you're at Disneyland all the time." I'd rather be at Silver Dollar City, but but while it's certainly true, right, that 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 um, stereotypes, right, we shouldn't stereotype. There is some truth in some stereotypes, and I think the stereotype is that all that we do, all the work that we do, is we do for rest. We work in order to rest. So we work to get to the weekends, or we work to get to the next vacation, or we work to get to retirement. Those aren't bad. Those aren't bad at all. It's just kind of weird that that's our aim, isn't it? Each aim is to get to the next next vacation or the next time that we can rest or have fun. In other words, the problem that I'm trying to pinpoint here is that we don't work for work's sake, as if, as if we were designed to work. No, we see work as an obstacle to get what we really want, rest. And that's exactly why Solomon says, go to the ant, because the ant's primary mode of operation is what? Work. What does an ant do? An ant works. That's what an ant is, what an ant does. And it, it is designed to work, and we are too. Right? Work is not an obstacle to human flourishing, but a part of human flourishing. I think we all know the person who lives life for leisure, the next moment of pleasure, right? They, 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 all, they act as if all of life's best enjoyments are the next party or the weekend at the lake. And hey, I'm, I'm down for a weekend at the lake at any time, so thank you for the invitation. Just let me know when y'all go and we'll meet you there. But wisdom teaches us to find pleasure in both our leisure and our 
work. Here's the thing. The unwillingness or the refusal to work, what does it do? It, it puts the burden on other people to do it. Whether it's, it's work that we pay for, work that we do at home, or work that we do at church, when we are unwilling to do work or refuse to do work, other people end up shouldering that burden. That's what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. Why, that's why he says, we hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. So the reason that work is vital is because if someone does not work, the strain becomes somebody else's burden. So listen. The gospel changes our view of work so that the pleasure of work isn't in getting to the next leisure time, but in serving others. The pleasure of work is not to help us get to that rest time. The pleasure of work becomes in serving other people. Paul says in Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should not only look after your own interests, but for the interests of what others. So work becomes a Christ-exalting, pleasurable exercise for building others up. Moving on. Thirdly, the gospel changes our view of relationships. You read verses 12 to 19, and actually all of these verses go together because several key themes belong together. They, they uh, perverse speech and trickery and, and division. And, you know, you read this style of, of writing in, in verse 16, right? There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Um, this is actually an old poetic technique uh, that they use to heighten the evil that God hates and, like, how much he hates it. So it's, it's a poetic technique to say, this is what God hates and this is how much God hates it. And while we can read these things and think of like seven di different kinds of people here, and, and we can, there's actually one kind of person that God, or that Solomon has in mind as he's writing this. Verse 14, the one who continually sows discord. Verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. All of these other things kind of orbit around that. Are used to serve the purpose of division. And God is fundamentally opposed to division. His very nature is to recoil at divisiveness and disorder. Because by His nature and by His character, God is a God of unity and community. God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in perfect, eternal, harmonious unity. So to sow division is to practice what is fundamentally at odds with God. That's why Paul warns Titus to warn a divisive person once or twice and then have nothing more to do with him. 
And there's actually a lot of confusion about what division is. So many of you know now, Ravi Zacharias, right, been exposed as a longtime sexual abuser. And I don't want to minimize what he did and how grievous it is. But in this effort to kind of uncover this behavior, a lot of people were like, man, y'all are being divisive. Like, why? He's dead. Like, why not just let it slide? You know, why are you trying to tarnish his character? And here's, here's what we need to understand. It's that it's Ravi's sin that was divisive. Exposing it is not. It's the sin that was divisive. It's what bringing it to light is what brings unity. And that's why we want, as a church, to faithfully practice church discipline, right? It is only in the proper exposing of sin that true unity can be maintained. As long as unrepentant and serious sin is tolerated, unity is just a facade. There can be no unity when sin, unrepentant, serious sin is present. And here's the other danger. Divisive people don't ever think of themselves as being divisive. If anything, truly divisive people, they think themselves as right and even righteous. Jared Wilson uh, once said that every sinfully divisive person I've ever encountered in church life has been utterly convinced they are on God's side and thus utterly blind to their own sin or constantly justifying it as just the unfortunate collateral damage necessary in taking down their enemies. So he see that the difference is a divisive person isn't really interested in building the other person up. The divisive person isn't really interested in building anybody up but tearing them down. The divisive person deep down is only interested in building themselves up, getting what they want and enacting their vision no matter what it costs other people. Do you see? It doesn't cost them a lick, but they're forcing other people to carry that cost. Divisiveness always uses this righteous facade to cover up using another, another person to get what they want. They'll cloak it in all kinds of Righteous and biblical language, but at the end of the day, it's not for building anybody up but themselves. And so how does the gospel and relationships factor into this? The gospel changes our view of relationships so that other people aren't obstacles but opportunities. The gospel changes our hearts so that Jesus' words are actually true of us. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Divisiveness thinks itself to be serving others, but is actually self-serving. The gospel promotes unity through self-sacrifice. Lastly, the gospel changes our view of women. There's a couple of things I want to say here. First, I know last week my sermon right was on this, sexual pleasure and adultery. 
But see how often Proverbs brings it up. We dare not ignore it or treat it lightly. But secondly, the other thing I want to say is I know this problem isn't just for men. I know women can absolutely struggle with this. But I worded this this way on purpose because women aren't historically the ones who abuse men. Women aren't the ones who historically use women. Men largely have seen and used women as objects. And as, as much as we should have conversations on modesty, it starts with us and within our own hearts. So our danger, right, in large part is what we saw last week. Sexual faithlessness and sin looks attractive. Look at, uh, look at verse 24, right? Wisdom, right, will preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. This is what makes it so insidious. Just like the ant is designed to work, the design of this sin is to look appealing. It's designed to trap you. But the responsibility for, for this sin and for caving in and, and for giving into it lies not with the other person, but on us. Look at verse 25. What does verse 25 say? Do not desire her beauty in your heart. And do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. It starts with you. It starts in your own heart. The biggest problem is what's happening right here. And the whole problem The whole problem with sexual sin and lust and faithlessness is that it always uses the other person for our own benefit. The object of our lust is only a means for our own pleasure. Even the girl on the computer screen is being exploited for your own pleasure. They are simply objects whose only real use to you is to make you feel good. And that's the point that Solomon is trying to make, especially in verses 30 to 32. People do not spise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. The reason he makes this point is because it is senseless and it's foolish. The the thief steals because he lacks, right? He's hungry and he needs bread to survive. People can understand that, right? Even though it's wrong and it's still a crime. We, We understand, well, like, yeah, you shouldn't do that, but yeah, you were hungry. But the adulterer doesn't seek what he lacks. He seeks what he already has. He's already got the bread, but he's going after somebody else's bread. And so it's senseless and it's, and it's foolish. So the gospel changes our view of women so that they aren't objects or means of pleasure, but people of inherent dignity and worth and value. We don't look at them as if they're a loaf of bread, useful only for our consumption. 
we look at them as those made in the image of God and more than that, for, as those for whom Christ has died. So wisdom, wisdom is immensely practical. Immensely practical. It's, it's, it's just like a manual, a fishing manual. It's meant to teach you how to practice it. And that practice comes out in your interactions in life with your wife and your family and your children and your relatives, your next door neighbor, your enemy, the person on the computer screen. Wisdom is about practicing righteousness in all of those interactions. The gospel changes how we view other people. When we sin, we are using other people to get what we want, right? So, so laziness puts the burden on others. Division puts others down to get our own way. Lust uses someone for our own benefit. And in all of these things, the cost goes on the other person. In all of these things, we put the burden on the other person, but the gospel changes us to put others' burdens on our own shoulders. The gospel changes us to take the cost on ourselves. And that's because Jesus bore the ultimate cost of our sin on himself. He took our burdens and placed them on his own shoulders. So his work, Jesus' work becomes our rest. The true place of rest for a Christian is to rest in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, which is perfect, full, and complete and available to you at all times. And the gospel changes us that we might practice real life, concrete, everyday wisdom. A wisdom that is about righteous acts, but more deeply, others-minded self-sacrifice. That's practical wisdom. Self-sacrificing, other, others-minded wisdom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are a fountain of grace to those who come to you by faith. You are our place of rest. Lord, and in all of these areas of life, we get so messed up and we get them imbalanced, we get them wrong, we miss the point. We make wrong judgments. We make wrong assessments. Our minds and our hearts are so out of sync and out of whack. And Lord Jesus, we come to you for rest. To reorient our hearts and our minds and our lives. That we might walk in practical wisdom. A wisdom that is not self-serving. A wisdom that is not self-seeking, but a wisdom that is other-serving, others-minded, self-sacrificing, self-debasing. Lord, the supreme wisdom is to 
follow you and to live like you did as the servant of all. Humble and lowly and gentle. Lord, you never once used another person for your own benefit. But always, always taxed yourself to the uttermost to serve us. And you did that to the ultimate end on the cross. Lord, thank you for not doing to us what we deserve, but doing to us what we so do not deserve. And Lord, thank you for taking on yourself the ways that we have used and abused and put down other people. People made in your image. Lord, we cast that sin on you because you are the sin-bearing, burden-bearing God-man. And as guilty as we are, we place that on you and we pray for the wisdom to practice self-sacrifice for your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.